when Peter wrote his first epistle to the church under persecution, he wrote to establish and to strengthen them in the faith. He wrote to encourage faithfulness. He wrote to instill hope for them as they endured the fires of life. Years have now passed and he writes again and the church is facing heresy. And the church is facing heresy. Already in this first century of Christianity, heresy had begun to come in. Because rather than idealizing the Word of God and putting the words of Scripture and the truth of sound doctrine up where it belongs, man had already begun to uh, honor his ideas that related to Scripture. And before long, tradition or personal preference or things that were tainted by self-interest began to be considered as doctrine. And whenever the Word of God is lowered from the position not of prominence, but of preeminence in the formation of faith and practice, this is going to happen. And so the church faced heresy and false teachers And now, as Peter writes to those who have been established in the faith, who were faithful under persecution, who have a great hope, now he writes to instill in them a diligence, a militance in support of and in defense of the truth. And he writes to give them a fuller knowledge of God and His ways as they live in a time of ferment where the easy times the church has at that point became a greater hazard to her health and safety than did the fires of trial. You know, when someone is suffering, they need a hope to look to. They need a solid hope that they can count on, that they may rest in as they suffer. But when that time has passed, when roles change as they had when Peter wrote this second epistle... And the church must be the church militant, contending for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints by the will of God and His Word becomes preeminent. Then soldiers in God's army need full knowledge of the truth. But whether it is hope in a time of suffering or knowledge for the battle that we face, both look forward to the same goal, which is the preeminence in the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his final uh, victory over all things. This letter of 2 Peter is very probably the last major communication that he had with most of his contemporaries. It is his final message. He is an old man. His martyrdom is near and he writes telling the church to be ready at all times and to cling at all cost to God's ways as they are revealed into, in God's Word and to let nothing take the place of those ways and that Word. And so, as in 1 Peter, there were a number of things that were proven that he, he shared with them, tested, tried, genuine things they could count on. Now having that foundation... And in a time of need, when the world needed the gospel more desperately than ever, as it does today, Peter writes and he tells them of several things that are urgent, things that 
cannot wait, that must go down every day in the life of a Christian and day by day in the life of a church family. And so this morning as this letter begins, Peter issues an urgent challenge to the people of God. Now in verses 1 through 4, which we have already read, Peter states the basis of that challenge, the basis of this urgent challenge. He says, and I read it again, Peter, a bond slave or one born a slave and apostle. Now apostle literally means, the word in the Greek means sent one. It means messenger boy. Like uh, in days past when the uh, telegraph office had boys with bicycles working for them. Someone would send a message. They'd put it in an envelope, put a name and address on it, and give it to the messenger boy, and he would take it and deliver it. That's the way Peter saw himself in his relationship to Jesus Christ, as a bond servant or a doulos, one who is born a slave and is a messenger boy of Jesus Christ. To those who have received, not have earned, not have found, not have developed, not have grown, but who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith is received as a gift in connection with the righteousness of God. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Short comment about that statement. His power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And if you are not living in the full provision that God has made for you, by way of spiritual power and effectiveness, by the power of a righteous life, by freedom from fear and frustration, if you are not walking in the Spirit, it is not because He has not made the resources available to you as His child. It is because you are not taking advantage of the free provision that is guaranteed by the sovereign power of an almighty God through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now, by these, by what? By His own glory and excellence, He has granted to us great and precious or precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine knowledge having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. To Christians, as he says in verse 2, grace and peace come in connection with his grace. A gracious life, a peaceful life are the gifts of his grace just as faith is guaranteed by his righteousness. Now, Peter says in verse 1, having identified himself in a very special relationship to the Lord Jesus, one born a slave to Christ, one the personal messenger boy of Christ, he says, I am writing to those who have received the same kind of faith that I have. You know, God doesn't have any favorites. People will always differ in function. 
There will always be some who are more visible in the eyes of men than others in the work of the Lord, but there will never be anybody more important than anybody else. God has never done anything for anybody that He won't do for you. Never. There is nothing God has promised. There is nothing the blood of Jesus guarantees. There is no level of spiritual maturity. There is no grace. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no provision that does not belong to you as the child of God. Knowledge of God is the basis of life. And it is the door to godliness. Peter says in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge or by the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now the word he uses for knowledge in verse 2 is the basic Greek word gnosis uh, where we get the word knowledge but it has a prefix epi, epinosis and it is very different for gnosis means a general knowledge epinosis means full complete knowledge out of which nothing has been taken it is total knowledge full knowledge complete knowledge now John in his epistles and Peter likewise talks about false knowledge and we have assigned names to the false teachers that were troubling the church in the days of 2 Peter and in the days of the book of 1 John. We called them Gnostics for they called themselves the knowers. The Gnostics, the knowers. There can be a false gnosis, a little bit of knowledge, general knowledge can be a dangerous thing for it can give people a false confidence and it can give them limited information on the basis of which they can make faulty decisions. There can be a false gnosis, but there cannot be a false epinosis, full, complete, total knowledge as opposed to incomplete and partial knowledge. Knowledge of God. It is the basis of the Christian life. It is the first door through which we must pass in order to get to godliness. Now, I'm not preaching a doctrine of education unto salvation. You say, but faith is the way we are saved. I refer you to Romans chapter 10, where Paul goes through a series of things that must happen if the gospel is to be preached and if people are to be saved. And in Romans 10, 14, Paul says, How shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? Knowledge is the doorway to godliness. In verse 3, His power gives all that we need. His power gives all that we need and He does it by way of His own glory and moral excellence. What is given? According to verse 3, everything pertaining to life and godliness. The faith of the Lord Jesus, as we are told in Galatians 2.20, is recreated in the believer. The foundation of the life is the gift of God given by His own glory and moral excellence. The walk in the Spirit, the walk of faith, the faith which saved is the faith that fills day by day and that walk with God, the building upon the foundation, the structure that is raised above the foundation 
other than which no man can lay. That Christian life is his gift as we walk with him. You know, only God can make a seed. We can take a seed to the laboratory now. They can isolate specific percentages and the specific content of any seed to the parts per million of everything that's in it. They can synthesize it, and I don't, you know, you know, I believe they can duplicate anything, but what it looks like under a microscope and what it does in some other function may not be the same thing. And I think things like this are the same. They can isolate, uh, you know, any component of life. They can recreate it in the test tube, but they can't create life, and they never will. Only God can make a seed. We can manufacture things that duplicate a seed in every way. Only you put it in the ground and it'll never grow. Only God can make a seed. And only we, only thing we can do for the seed is to nurture it. Now, only God can plant the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ within us. Only His grace, His mercy guaranteed by His own nature, by His own glory, by His own divine power. Only He can give the life of Christ to us. And only He can give us the Christian life and the walk of excellence. But we can nurture it through obedience. Then in verse 4 He says, By these, by His own glory and excellence, He has granted to us great and precious, precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Do you want to escape from the domination of the flesh? Whether it is a little thing, an inward thing, a secret thing that only you know about, or whether it is gross immorality, or whether it is a habit that you are shackled to, that you want to break, If you want to be free of it, you can be free of it by the promises of God. And only you must bear the responsibility and the accountability if you're not free of it. By these, by His own glory and virtue, God has granted us great and precious promises and by way of them we become partakers in the divine nature. John Bunyan, who spent his many years in Bedford jail and gave the world Pilgrim's Progress and a host of other marvelous Christian writings, said this, The pathway of life is strewn so thickly with the promises of God that it is impossible to take even one step without treading on at least one of them. If there is no power in your life, it is because you are not appropriating the promises of God. You see, we somehow, we get through to the point, those of us who are saved, where we realize that it is Jesus and Jesus only who saves by grace through faith and salvation. But then after we are saved, a little while later, we begin to believe that if we are going to be effective for the Christian life, God, who after all is such an old man, he's been around a while, doesn't really understand this modern era and that we're going to have to do it on our own. If there is no power in your life, it is because you are not living on the basis of the promises of God. Now, there are over 8,000 promises in Scripture. 
Not all of them are equal to every are equally applicable to every person in every situation. But as you read Scripture, which is going to be a major emphasis of everything that we do in the coming year, as you read Scripture, the Spirit of God who grants the prayer of Psalm 119.18, Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. The Spirit of God will reveal to you how the promise of God affects your life. And as you confess His sufficiency and His power and His virtue and claim His promise, all of heaven must bow to invest the promise of God in your life. And how is it guaranteed? Not by the faulty faithfulness of man, not by the fickleness of man, not by our inconsistencies, but by the perfect faithfulness of a sovereign God who, as we sung today, His oath. His covenant, His blood support us in the whelming flood that comes. By these, He has given us promises. Now, when someone makes a promise, and especially when God makes a promise, we may know safely if God made the promise, first of all, that it is something that God can do. God doesn't promise anything that God can do, that He can't do. First, it is something He can do. Secondly, it is something that he will do or he wouldn't have promised it. Thirdly, it is something that God can do as he pleases and as he chooses and not when we please and when we choose. You see, the promises of God are not like one of those cards you get, get out of jail free on the Monopoly board and you stick it in your pocket until you hit the wrong square and go to jail, directly to jail. Do not pass go, do not collect $200, which if that game is going to retain any credibility. They're going to have to allow for inflation in their dollar figures. It's not something like that. The promises of God are not something that you file away and pull out when you want them. They are something that the Almighty God gives as He pleases. And then a promise, likewise, is something that only God can do. You see, Peter is saying to them now, in these verses... You become like Christ, not only by way of fire, as he told them in the first epistle, but we become like Christ, fit to live the Christian life through his great and precious promises. Now, Peter is going to go on in this second epistle to share some things that are very demanding of us. But here, in these verses, is the basis of that challenge, the great and precious promises of God. And then in verses 5 through 7, here we are building, or 5 through 8 actually, here we are building for this challenge. The basis of the challenge, faith guaranteed by the promises of God, building for this challenge. Let us read. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, which you have received as the gift of God. In your faith, supply virtue or moral excellence. In your moral excellence, supply knowledge. And in your knowledge, gain self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, Christian love. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 5 he says that because of the basis of the challenge, we can build for the challenge. Because of his promises, we can be diligent. Now, you know, we get things out of order, like proverbially getting the, the cart before the horse. And some of you don't know what that means. You can just ask some of these uh, more mature people around you, and they can tell you. But we get things all turned around, and we somehow believe that it is going to be our diligence that produces the godliness. No. He says, by virtue of the faith, which is a gift, guaranteed by the power and the virtue of God, by virtue of his promises, then you can be diligent. And with the diligence, which is a product of the gift of God, now in your faith, add to it virtue or moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge, and so forth. This is a golden chain as it were, these things that Peter mentions. Now, if you want to get somewhere, follow the map. And if you want to get to godliness, follow this route. You do not get to a life, the goal of this Christian life, short term, is to be like Jesus, which is to be an expression of Christian love day by day. But you don't get there overnight. You don't get there by saying, Oh God, fill me with perfect Christian love. You get there by following the map, and this is the map. First of all, you have to have the foundation. You have to be saved by the grace of God. Then you have to know the promises and you have to apply the promises. Then you can become diligent. Then you can begin to be virtuous. And then you can begin to add all of these things onto it. Notice virtue, clean living if you please, a godly character precedes the acquisition of full knowledge. You know, we live in a world which is operating on the assumption that all we have to do is educate the world out of its problems. Let me tell you what we've done by education. We've created nations on every continent almost, at least in both hemispheres, that are now developed to the point where they can learn how to make the bomb. That's what we've done. And I don't think we've done anything, and I don't think anybody's foolish enough to think that this great goal which we embarked on in this modern era of enlightenment, of educating the world into perfection, has accomplished a thing. Because you see, true godliness, true virtue, faith, salvation, all of these things precede the acquisition of true knowledge which comes only from God. You know, knowledge that doesn't come from God is just information. That's all it is. First, the virtue, then the knowledge. Here is a rope, a golden rope of seven strands bound together. And when they are all tied together, they are unbreakable as the gift of God to His people. They all start with and depend on the faith, which is His gift, by which we receive the vision of what He wants us to be and what He wants us individually and collectively to do. 
faith by which we receive the desire to please Him. As Paul wrote, for it is He within you both that wills and does according to all His good pleasure. It is by faith that we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. Faith without knowledge is fanaticism. So-called faith without a solid knowledge of God and His Word is fanaticism. That's what a fanatic is. A fanatic is somebody is not somebody that's crazy about Jesus the way some of us are crazy about sports. A fanatic is someone that's crazy about what he believes, no matter what God says. Faith without knowledge is fanaticism. As we are told in the New Testament, there is a zeal not according to knowledge. All these things Peter mentions grow from faith. Ignorance inhibits God's freedom to use us as He chooses. Now in verse 7, we move from kindness to love. From brotherly kindness or Philadelphia, brotherly love, to Christian love, which is agape. Now, you know, we think that if you love somebody, you're always nice to them and you never speak a cross word to them. If being a saint means never making anybody angry, then I'm afraid you have to disqualify Jesus Christ from being a saint. If being a saint means that you have no enemies, I think that means that God himself does not qualify for being a saint. True love involves discipline. The Word says that the Lord Jesus loved His enemies, but He spoke truth to them. He disciplined them. He told them what God expected of them. Here is building for the challenge. And then in verse 9, here is blindness to the challenge. In verse 9, Peter covers the situation of the one who lacks the evidence that God is within his life. But he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. He who lacks these qualities, this golden rope of seven strands of Christian living, is blind, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Do you know who the most intolerant person in the world is? Is somebody who used, who used to be what they hate. Somebody who used to be what they hate is intolerant. Characteristically, you let somebody be gloriously saved out of a sordid background, and the next time you turn around and look at them, they are preaching hellfire and damnation to their former friends as though they had never dwelt in a life of sin. You see, there's something wrong when we can forget where we came from. And whenever you find a critical negative spirit, not going to qualify those things with any adjectives or adverbs, period, a critical negative spirit, you find somebody that has forgotten how no good they are without Jesus Christ. And you've also found somebody who does not possess a continuing relationship with Christ because the Christian life is Jesus in you and Jesus doesn't act like that. 
Jesus just doesn't act like that at all. We move from kindness to love, and love involves discipline. This word, blind or short-sighted, is a word that means to close the eyes. They are not blind because they have no eyes. They are blind because they close them and will not see. As the cliche says, there are none so blind as those who will not see, seeing only what they desire to see, choosing to close their eyes to the fact that there is a battle going on around them, forgetting that he used to be impure and unsaved. That's the only way some Christians can become what they are. And that is that they close their eyes both to what they were and what God wants them to be. And having acknowledged the existence of a blindness to the urgent challenge that he lays down, in verses 10 and 11, Peter shares that we are to be bold in the challenge, boldness in the challenge. He writes, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. We are to be even more diligent. Therefore, be more diligent. Why? Because some are not diligent at all. And so, if the challenge is before you, and if the golden chain of virtue is your possession by the grace of God, be more diligent. Because the need is great. Be stable. Endure, not on your own strength, not by your own power, but by the presence of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, for we are to be sure, we are to be sure, be more diligent to make certain that he has called and chosen you. This is very much like what Paul said when he said, examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. Examine yourselves. Be certain that he has called and chosen you. It behooves every Christian not to question the reality of the grace of God, but it behooves every Christian to be certain they have devoted their lives to Jesus and not some mistaken, misguided idea about what it means to believe the truth. But personally to Jesus Christ, if you ever had Jesus, you will retain him for the basis of salvation is not what you do to keep it, it is what Jesus did to buy it when he died at the cross. And he says, by this, by way of diligence, stability, endurance, grace, power, forgiveness, the golden chain of Christian virtues, by this, the road into the entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Son is made plain and abundantly supplied to you, where one day we will hear the word of the Father, well done, good and faithful servant. This challenge is urgent. Peter is going to go on to tell us more about it as he explains our responsibilities and the threat that was overtaking the church in that day, which is overtaking the church in our day. But the challenge is urgent. 
because the gospel has been watered down, because God's Word has been brought down to a level with tradition and man-made things. Man-made things are now honored. And Peter challenges us to be ready, to be consistent, to be true to him at all costs. And the Scriptures always leave us with a challenge, with a question to commitment to consider. And that is, will you accept the challenge? Or will you float, not so gently, down the stream of life, untouched, unhelped, unsupported by the grace of God? May we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that as we go through this life, we are not merely floating down the stream gently, but we have been called and challenged to meet a vicious enemy who prowls about seeking whom he may devour. Father, you know our hearts and you know our needs. You know that there are multiplied thousands around us in this very community who are in desperate need of the gospel and of the truth that we are not touching. Now, Father, impart the challenge to us. Do with us as you please. Draw from every worshiper life-changing commitment, whether by faith unto salvation, by surrender and repentance unto restoration, whether it is a call to be actively involved and committed to the church and the life of the church, whatever it is, do with us as you please in this moment, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand to sing hymn 347, I Surrender All. What he would have you do today, if you need to be saved, come, let us pray with you and share with you how to open your heart to Jesus Christ. He is the perfect Savior for sinners. If he would have you plant your life in this church to be a part of it, come seeking membership. If he would have you renew and restore your vows of commitment to him so that he may cleanse your heart. Come, kneel to pray about that. What he would have you do, do it right now. Do it quickly.